performance intelligence is the ability to recognize how physical, psychological, and emotional states affect work and life and adapting environments to optimize performance. Hello, it's Andrew May, and welcome to the Performance Intelligence Podcast, where we explore all things human performance. Today, we're going to dissect that term, performance intelligence, and there's only one person who can do this. With me, it's Dr. Tom Buckley. Dr. Tom Buckley has literally worked by my side for the past 18 years in five different business iterations. A lot of people think, Dr. Tom, you've got a master's in resilience, hanging out with me for nearly two decades. Uh, He originally trained as a specialist intensive care RN before undertaking doctoral studies, investigating the impact of stress on human physiology and cardiovascular risk factors. Dr. Tom Buckley is an associate professor and a director of research education in the Faculty of Medicine and Health at Sydney University, and is an honorary research fellow at Royal North Shore Hospital. He's renowned as one of the world's leading experts on the impact of stress and how that shows up on human functioning. He's written and contributed to over 80 research papers in peer-reviewed academic journals. With me, he co-wrote the book MatchFit. Dr. Tom, we've now clicked over 90,000 copies, which is beyond our wildest dreams. You have two athletic boys, and you are always walking around ovals, forests, and pathways in bare feet, trying to optimize your well-being as well. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andrew. You, you make me sound like Forrest Gump. <laughs> Run, Forrest. <laughs> Maybe you are. Now, today, as a, a guide, a rough guide, four things I'd like to cover. Number one, we need to explain to people the evolution of performance intelligence or what we shorten to PQ, but we're going to go with performance intelligence. Two is our definition of performance intelligence. Three, Performance intelligence in action. I want to ask you about what you did at a certain period in your life, and I know you want to throw me on the spot as well and ask a few questions. And four, we'll talk about our vision for this. But let's start, number one, the evolution. So performance intelligence, we believe, is the third instalment. So there's IQ or intelligence quotient, and that was coined by psychologist William Stern back in 1912. Tom, we went around then, and that was used at the University of Breslau as an intelligence test or a scoring for that. Now, EQ, emotional intelligence, first came around in 1964 when Michael Beldock wrote a paper, but it became really popular in the mid-90s, 1995, a book that sold millions of copies, Dr. Tom, Daniel Goleman's book on emotional intelligence. And his definition or the evolved definition of EQ is the capability to recognize your own emotions and those of others around you and to understand or discern between different feelings and label them appropriately. Now, we think IQ is mainly set. We think EQ, you can definitely work on. And then we've evolved to PQ, performance intelligence. It's more than IQ and EQ, although you need both as a foundation. And this concept emerged after you and I have worked with high performers across multiple fields, sport, entertainment, performing arts, academia, the military, our respective and combined careers. And you've added a medical lens to this as well. Yeah, and Andrew, you know, you, you say IQ is something we might be born with, but actually you can have very high IQ, but actually you might not be using it very well. So I think, you know, emotional intelligence as well, which is an important component of PQ, but emotional intelligence on its own is not is not just PQ. Well, you can be super intelligent and miss cues. Yeah, absolutely. And you can also not necessarily have the tools to to know what to do with it. So I think when we talk about performance intelligence, um, it is a bigger concept than IQ and uh, EQ. 
Well, we better give people a definition because tools is a big part of this as well. So our definition of performance intelligence is the ability to recognize how physical, psychological, and emotional states affect work and life and adapting environments to optimize performance. Now, Dr. Tom, performance intelligence applies to the way we turn up in our personal relationships, and it also applies to the way we turn up at work. Now, PQ or performance intelligence is important whether it's one-on-one, and I can tell you as a speaker, it's definitely important when it's one to some audiences I now have is up to 10 or 15,000 people. We believe it's the next big thing in optimizing human performance. It's only taken us nearly 20 years to come up with this term, so (laughs) 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 you may say we've done our due diligence or we may be a little bit slow and we've taken our time, but it is a skill you can develop, and we really believe with the right training and the right mindset, and you said before the right tools, you can help people to have a much greater performance intelligence. So that's my definition. Again, it's the ability to recognize how physical, psychological, and emotional states affect work and life, and it's adapting environments to optimize performance. So that's my slash our street-friendly edition. Give us the medical one, your definition. Before I give you the medical one, I I would actually pick up on what you said there about performance intelligence, the next big thing in optimizing human performance. I think performance intelligence is optimizing human performance. And, and so if we look at it from a scientific definition, scientifically performance intelligence is self-awareness of biological and psychological cues associated with human functioning. But it's also that self-efficacy to strategically apply performance levers based on human factors to optimize performance outcomes. So I, I think when we talk about uh, performance intelligence, we do need to break down that into how, how does that look when we actually want to apply it to our daily, our daily activities. Yeah, good point, because it's one thing to have knowledge. Yeah. Knowledge applied is a totally different framework, it's a totally different way of operating your life. Yeah, and knowledge is a, a precursor to many of our behaviours. Sometimes it's lack of knowledge and sometimes it's knowledge, but having knowledge doesn't immediately mean that your behaviours will align with that knowledge. And the best example of that, Andrew, was when I was an 18-year-old, first first week in a hospital, Greenwich Hospital in London. I could not get over when you walked into the canteen how much smoke there was in the air, you know, all these doctors, nurses, physios, all smoking. I mean, that that's... So they they would have had the knowledge about the effects of smoking 30 years ago, but that certainly wasn't reflected in the behavior of many clinicians. Yeah, and I say this to purposely provoke when I'm working with an executive team, and I'll often name you as well. I don't throw you under the bus, but I'll say Dr. Tom Buckley and I, for more than or close to two decades, we've worked with some really intelligent people who do some really dumb things when it comes to well-being and performance and psychology. And you just see people look up and go, "Well, obviously, we're not talking about anyone in the room, but you know, maybe it's people you know." And and people laugh and go, "Oh my God, he's talking to me." But yeah, you can know a lot of stuff, but not do stuff. And that's really where we believe it's the third iteration in performance. So we've given you the evolution of performance intelligence. We've given you the definition. 
my definition. I tend to go more the street term. Dr. Tom gives it a little bit more medical power. But now, Tom, I'd really like to talk about three different areas that you've added to our model, and I love this. In fact, I was quoting this this morning, and I felt like it was me. <laughs> I've adapted it <laughs> totally. And I heard you recently talking, and uh, I had a, a client this morning play back to me two quotes. Oh, Dr. Tom said this, and Dr. Tom said that. I didn't have the heart to tell them that they're my quotes. <laughs> so we're morphing into one, you poor man. But the three things I'd like you to give a little bit more detail to is, one, self and situational awareness. And this is critical to our performance intelligence approach. Two is skills development and and how you shift state. And three is reflection, evaluation and reassessment. So important. So self and situational awareness to start. Hit us with that. So Andrew, in in the medical world, you, you always operate on a model of assess, plan, implement and evaluate. And when it comes to performance intelligence, um, the assessment bit is so critical here. We really do have to to have self-awareness. Now, when we talk about self-awareness, we're really talking about knowing ourselves, um, knowing what some of our traits are, knowing what our habits are, but also depending on, on what we're trying to achieve, it may also relate to actually knowing our physiology, knowing how our physiology reacts. And of course, that's totally possible today um, and greater than ever. So it's having this self-awareness, self-awareness of how you respond what things do to you. A, a simple example, Andrew, you know, I see people drinking cans of Coke and I look at that person drinking the can of Coke, not with a judgment because it's totally their right to do it, but I immediately think about what's happening physiologically to them. Yeah, but they're probably not thinking that. So it's about, it's about just having this awareness of what things are doing to us. And the opposite of that, of course, is somebody getting loads of sunlight in the morning, having an awareness of, yes, the sun might feel nice, but actually I look at that and I think about physiologically the 500 chemical reactions that's giving you within your body and how well, that relates to your well-being. Why don't you try and experiment? Well Next time you're out just in public and you see someone drinking a can of Coke, you don't even know, just walk up and say, hi, Dr. Tom, what's your name? Claire, Claire, do you realise there's 12 to 14 teaspoons of sugar in that can of Coke? Do you realise what that's doing to your insulin response? I don't think that's a conversation that would go so well. No, it doesn't go very well with my own children, so I can only imagine what would happen if I did it to strangers. But I guess the concept here of performance intelligence is an individual becoming aware of what different things are doing and, and often thinking about what things trigger different reactions. And so if, if every time you go to a particular place, it triggers a reaction in you, becoming aware of this, this self-awareness. If every time you're met with stress, whether it be workload or relationship stress or or, or conflict, um, becoming aware of what your traits and responses are so that you can either de-escalate or you can actually start to apply performance intelligence to managing yourself and the situation. So this self-awareness, but also situational awareness. It's amazing how sometimes we are lost in our own world of either busyness or stress or focused work, and we become totally unaware of the situation around us. I think an important part of performance intelligence is being cued into what's going on around us, what how you might be uh, influencing other people or how you actually uh, in different, respond differently in different situations. I like how you've added that because for a long time we've worked on self-awareness and we'll get into self-regulation too, totally two different things. Self-awareness, we often say in coaching psychology is knowing what to do. Self-regulation is actually doing it. But that situational awareness moves from me to we. That's really important. And how we measure this is 
one way is our human performance assessment. So if we have a high net worth individual, a CEO, a founder of a startup, or just a high performer in general come to us and say they want to do a coaching program, majority of them will do a human performance assessment. Now on that, we do online assessments, we do our match fit calculator, we do our work fit calculator. Match fit calculator looks at body and brain, so a holistic approach to optimizing performance. Work fit, there's 168 hours in a week. How do you optimize that and how do you connect with what's important? But then you go deep, you get a full blood pathology and we also do a 48 hour HRV. So it's specific to self and I suppose adding situational awareness, what do you look for in that human performance assessment with clients? Well, what I try to do is to map the individual's state at a particular time. And so it will be emotional, psychological, behavioral risk factors, uh, but also look at their pathology and sometimes I'll look at DNA profile as well. Um, sometimes do a, a DEXA scan, whole body imaging to, to, to be able to come back to the individual and say, okay, this is what you look like to me right now, or this is what you're both telling me about yourself, but also here's what the objective data is showing where you're at now. And that for most clients is absolutely something they don't get elsewhere. You know, it's not a assessment to see if your cholesterol is up, although that is one thing we look at. It is an assessment to look at all your physiology, what are the main physiological pathways, what do they look like right now, and then to look at how is that associated with how you're feeling, what you're doing, and where you're trying to go. Because I think an important part of performance intelligence isn't just knowing where you are now, it's actually then using that information to transition to where you want to go. Um, and for some people, that's living to 100. For other people, it's actually about their emotional well-being. For others, it's their physical well-being. For other people, it's relationships. So the performance intelligence is about tailoring that to where the individual's life goals are moving forward. And I love picking up the conversation after you've done a human performance assessment with one of our high performers or a aspirational high performer, and they start playing back stuff like, I had no idea I meant to get 10,000 steps every day. I had no idea I meant to get 10 minutes of sunshine on a bright day or 30 minutes on a cloudy day. Do you know how much difference it's making to my energy pathways not drinking coffee first thing and pushing it back 90 minutes? I had this conversation with that client I referenced before this morning. He's in a totally different state. And he said to me, uh, he's one of our international clients who's had a health assessment, an executive health assessment for the last 15 plus years. He said, why have I not been given any of this stuff in the executive health assessments? And you know, I will disclose I am a co-founder of Executive Health Solutions, uh, Australia's largest executive health assessment provider, still uh, a part owner in that, not actively involved day to day. I think that's really important. This is what I explained to our client this morning, Tom. That's good more from a risk management point of view to make sure there's no disease or markers showing future expression of disease. But what we do on a human performance assessment is really look at what are the metrics to, to live the life by and what are the levers you need to pull to optimize performance. Whereas an EHA is more around disease risk we're looking at performance optimization. Anything you want to add on the difference between the two? Because I get that a lot. In fact, we need to write something on this to give to clients in the future. I'll pick that up with you offline. Yeah, look, there's a gray zone in the middle here between the two, and there should be, because the question always is, when we're doing a human performance assessment, we are looking at psychological, emotional, physiological, and behavioral 
factors. There are, so there are factors associated with performance or factors associated with well-being, but many of them are also risk factors for future diseases. When we do a health assessment, or when you go to your general practitioner and you have a health assessment or you have it through your workplace, through an executive health assessment, the screening there is looking for pathologies. It's looking for things that signs of pathological disease process evolving. Now, in the middle is a gray zone. My interest in the performance assessment is to come back to the client and to be able to get them to understand their physiology, to understand where their levels are, and then what are the things that influence that, which really leads to the next part of performance intelligence, which is really around skill development and application of those skills to what it is they're trying to achieve. In the medical world, you would never you would never start to implement anything without having done a thorough assessment. But what we see in society today, and particularly with a, 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 a lot of the sort of hacking type movement. Is oh, hang on, timestamp wizard. How far are we into the podcast? <laughs> and the good doctor has mentioned biohacking. I, I, I was going to fire you up at the start, actually. I said this to Thomas. I Watch this. I'll, I'll drop the word biohacking. But I, I didn't want to throw you off because I know you go down a rabbit hole. Oh, God, I see this. That. Can I, can I jump in first? <laughs> I've just jumped in. Oh, you've, um, jumped, you've jumped in, so keep yeah. going. <laughs> so the quantified self-movement, there's some good stuff in that. So let, let me go through some of the stuff that Dr. Tom and I collectively think is useful. So quantified self, I'll lead on this, mate, and you can add. But that started because I've done the research on this. It was life logging back in 2007 in Wired magazine. Gary, Gary Wolf and Kevin Kelly first spoke about this concept of the quantified self-movement. So collecting data, including food, you can look at air quality, mood, skin conduct skin conductance, and all this around you know, your physiology and your state. I think there's some really good stuff around the quantified self-movement. Yeah. The second thing I want to add to the conversation, and I told you I was going to hijack this, is wearable <laughs> tech. You can now measure heart rate, daily steps, respiration, calories, sleep time, fatigue, changes in blood profile, insulin levels, ketones, cognitive function. What have I missed? And we know the wearable tech market is increasing at least 15 to 20% a year, and it's now a multi-billion dollars. In fact, two years ago, it was noted as a $60 billion US industry. So it's massive. Now, I wear my watch and I get 12,000 steps a day. I measure sleep. We measure HRV. So with those two things, Tom, there is some really good stuff and some rigor and data from quantified self-movement and wearable tech. Do you want to add to that? I don't know if I want to add to that, but I'll elaborate a little bit on some of the things you said. In many ways, I really love people measuring because if you measure things, you become aware of things. So it's not about not doing it. Where I think it gets risky is that you get a lot of non-qualified health professionals giving health advice based on what worked for them. You're so diplomatic. I could see your brain ticking and, over. Well, well, well I'm, not a, I'm not an anti-biohacker, but I do shiver and I do get really worried. And I'll give you a good example of this. There was a, a, a person I used to cycle a lot with who used to go on social media and, and had a massive following. And his whole message was around rubbishing sun cream. And so, you know, he had picked up one aspect of one study and then he was trying to make a career out of it. 
And when I try to have a reasonable conversation with him around the mass evidence and the scientific evidence and the pros and cons, because for everything, there is risk and benefit to everything we do when it comes to our well-being and health. When you try to have a conversation around the risk part versus the benefit part, he would get so emotional. And that, to me, is dangerous because you're influencing people with, with sort of pseudoscience or selective pseudoscience. Now, I'm not saying all biohackers do that. Don't get me wrong. It has potential danger because no human being responds in the same way to different interventions. If we come back to performance intelligence, which what we're talking about here is applying some intelligence to what skills are right for you and then how you use those skills to shift state. Now, whether it's shifting your physiology, whether it's shifting your psychological state, whether it's shifting your behaviors, it's all based on assessment tailored interventions, developing the right skills, and of course, a good mix of behavioral change um, science into how you go about doing that. It's not go to Google and here, buy this particular product. Uh, Andrew, you, you, know, you know, we ran some workshops recently to um, over 900 participants on wearable tech. And the biggest message I got from that, and this was a young audience, was that they were measuring things, but they had no idea what they meant. They had no idea how to use that data. Performance intelligence is actually knowing what data to measure for you, which might be different to me, and how to apply that to you. And heart rate variability is a really good example of that. You know, I, I have clients who come to me and say, my heart rate variability is 40, is that good? I mean, there are so many questions I need to ask before I even, and I, I try not to answer the good thing, because it's an individual measurement, depends on which variable of heart rate variability you're measuring, depends on when you measured it, depends on the what situation, and it depends on how you define good. The biohacking movement doesn't strip it back to that personalized level, and it doesn't necessarily tailor it to the individual. Now, there may be biohackers who do that, but as a general principle, that's not what we call performance intelligence. I'll just jump on my biohacking hobby horse again, Dr. Tom. I think there is some good information that's come out of biohacking, some of the technology we do use. The issue I have is with the notion that you know, people can go out and drink all weekend, consume other substances, not exercise, get crappy sleep, and then Monday I do a biohack and totally reset my whole microbiome. It doesn't work like that. And I, I get why it works, because if you say to people, here's a pill, a potion, a bottle, or a lotion that's going to make you younger, faster, more attractive, increase sexual performance, why would you not do that? But when you and I sit down with someone and say, you've got to move every day you've got to eat the right amount of food you've got to manage your psychology and emotions you've got to work smart nature play it doesn't sound anywhere near as sexy so just to, to frame i think there's some good technology and we use that from the biohacking world it just rubs me the wrong way that it's often sold as this pill potion bottle or lotion that fixes everything we have billions of cells you can't have one size fits all get off the hobby horse over to you you don't have one fits at all. But I think from a performance intelligence, it's about personalizing and working out what metric is right for you and, and then how you might shift your state doing that. The third really important element of performance intelligence is this constant self-evaluation and reflection. And I think this bit often gets lost. Um, you know, in, in order to, to really become a master of shifting your own state, there will be a lot of trial and error, 
but you absolutely have to evaluate how you're going. And, and, and this is just innate to medicine or nursing or physiotherapy or any of the health professions, totally innate, this continuous cycle of evaluation. But often that gets forgotten. And what happens is people don't stop and reflect. Um, and reflection itself is incredibly important to performance intelligence. Yeah. And for the nerds and for those that like a bit of psychology interspersed, when you do those three parts that Dr. Thomas spoke about, number one, self and situational awareness, not just you, but the environment and others. Two, skill development and shifting state. And you really can shift physical and psychological and emotional state. And then three, the reflection, the evaluation and the reassessment. To me, the psychology model on that or the framework is Albert Bandura's self-efficacy, which is the power you have to influence your environment, uh, your emotions, your situation. And it takes work. It really does. Whether we're talking about psychology principles or physiology or medicine, it takes reps and sets. This is, this is what I say in all my mental skills work, Tom. You don't just go and do a breathing course or you know look at constructs like confidence or better management around being calm, and you don't do it the week before a big game. You do it outside high-pressure situations. You bumble, you fumble, you work on it, you pull the levers, what's working, what's not. That third part, that reflection, evaluation, reassessment is really important. And then months down the track, this becomes a part of your new operating system. And I, and I think that's, again, why both of us irk sometimes at Hack. It's not just doing one little thing. It takes time to embed this. It does. And I think just uh, using models here help you because I think reflection means different things to different people. And you can become very focused on how you might have felt in a situation and think you're reflecting. And that's just one component of reflection. So there's a model I really like. It's a Gibbs model. It's a very simple model of just describing what happened, just being on emotion, just describe what, what happened. Um, then once you've described what happened, then describing what feelings you were thinking and feeling at the time, and then asking yourself what was good or bad about that experience. So it's doing it in a structured way. Um, and then asking yourself what, what sense can you make of that situation? And then what would you have, what would you do different the next time so that you have this almost preparation in your mind? Okay. So this is well, because people tend to do the same thing, but expect a different outcome. And I think one of the big values of, of models of reflection or just using structured reflection is that you become awareness of these patterns that are not leading to your desired outcome. Perfect segue. Let's get to number three, performance intelligence in action. 11 a.m. on Sunday, May 16th in 2020, I receive a phone call from Nat, your wife, and she was visibly shaken, informing me you had just had a mountain bike accident. What I didn't realize is just how bad the accident was. In fact, I don't think I really grasped this until months after. You're a little bit like the guy off uh, the Holy Grail who loses his arm. Oh, it's just a flesh wound. You know, come back here. <laughs> I'm, I'm adding fun to a very serious uh, matter, so I'll get back into the seriousness. But to start with, let's go back to that morning on Sunday, the 16th of May, and tell our audience about what happened. Uh, just a few scratches, Andrea. I think the problem with working in ICU for 30 years is that, um, you know, unless you're unless you're on that store, it's only a scratch. But the reality is that it was a crash on rocks that went terribly wrong, resulting in um, over 20 bone fractures, including seven or eight spinal processes, 14 ribs, and, um, and a lot of blood into the lungs, clavicle, 
had quite quite a, a, a severe traumatic injury that required intensive care for a few weeks. Um, a few so twenty two days, you're in ICU. Yeah, probably probably was, <laughs> but I, I think uh, the problem working in, in intensive care is you see people worse, so you try to downplay it. So from a performance intelligence perspective, I guess it's an it's an example, or at least my example, of how you would apply performance intelligence in two con two contexts. One is the acute scenario of um, you're on the ground, you're in a mess, this could be life-threatening, and then also how you apply it to the recovery process. Let's fast forward about three months, give or take, from the accident. You walk in to the doctor who was treating you, the surgeon who was treating you. He almost fainted. He thought you had a twin brother. There's a doppelganger looking like Dr. Tom Buckley because he just could not believe the shape you were in, physically, psychologically, emotionally. And this really was when we were starting to evolve PQ. So we didn't realise that that accident was really going to be your opportunity to pull all the levers to put this into practice. And, and I don't want to trivialise it because this was a really serious accident. And I think the risk for you in explaining this, sometimes you just go, yeah, I did this, this, this. But I want people to know listening, you really, you you put your life at risk on this. You had punctured lung as well, was it pneumothorax? Yeah, pneumothorax, hemothorax, so one, one's ear and one's fluid. I think that, that experience kind of made me realise that there is, we all have this ability to have performance intelligence, particularly in domains that we've done the hard work on. And so I was very, very aware that uh, of how I respond in stress situations. I was very aware of uh, my coping mechanisms. I've done a lot of work on this, um, and I do a lot of research in this area, so I had a good knowledge of this area, but then to apply it to yourself. So so it really was around knowing, having this self-awareness of how you're going to respond here. Faced with, with medical emergencies, you can either crumble and become a victim of it, or you can actually mobilize all your coping resources in a sort of positivist problem-solving way of actually managing your way out of it. Was that hard to let go, though? Because I can... I can imagine you, you've had 30 years of domain expertise in ICU, but you're in control. You're working with a team. And what I love that I've really learned from you and having a few operations myself, it can change who's in charge depending on what's happening in the operation. But you had 30 years of domain expertise being in control in theatre. How did you then shift? How much did you struggle shifting to, to being the patient and being told what to do? Well, initially it was quite easy because I couldn't do a lot for myself. So you, you, you pretty much um, were, were taken care of. It was difficult. It was difficult as you're trying to grasp back some degree of independence and control over the scenario. And it was difficult to let go of the fact that actually these, a lot of these people here are colleagues of yours, um, but actually you're a patient now. And, and so that was very difficult. And I think that a lot of that. Um, shifting mindset was really, really important because it's very hard to be objective on your own state when you're actually in the middle of experiencing it. So you do actually need health professionals to be objective and saying, yes, no, this is what we advise, etc. It's it's a, a joint venture when you're a patient and it should be when I'm a clinician in ICU working with a patient, I see that as a joint venture too. It's not me telling them, it's us discussing what's best for you. So that was a, that was a hard shift. A very very hard shift. Back to your discussion on the doctor who had who'd overseen my care in ICU. 
His disbelief was that in three months I could be back on a bicycle. And he was like, there's no way you should be able to do that. But once again, you know, we all have different states prior to these traumas. You know, your fitness level, your knowledge level, 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 what levers you apply, how you go about doing it. But I think underneath that was a real understanding of how I cope in these scenarios and then how you mobilize the resources, including people, to help you to move from where you are to where you want to go. And, and that's very, very similar to how you and I do it with our executive clients in actually working out how do we take you from point A to point B and the performance intelligence bit is in the middle. Um, everything from that self and situational awareness, skill development to changing state, but a lot of evaluation and reflection, working out what's working, under what circumstances and why. Let's get granular. Once you had this self and situational awareness, which would have kicked in pretty quick, like, you know, you're a staffed technical term. <laughs> uh, I see you for 22 days. Then the work started. What, what, what did you do? Let everyone know what you did to accelerate the healing. And healing, there's physical, there's bones, but there's also the emotions and the psychological healing as well. Well, it's not one thing. It's everything. And I think that's the, for me, I don't point on one thing. It's everything from mindset to awareness of how you're, you're responding to different people, to different scenarios, to the environment. I mean, when you're in a, in a scenario where you can struggle to move, then you're stuck in an environment. So it's, it's, it's everything right through from how you're feeling, how you're thinking, how you're impacting others to right then to actually applying the levers around what food you're taking, what movement you can do, what's optimal for you. You know, it, it's everything. It's a whole load of levers. It's never one thing. But I think what underneath all of that is actually truly having done the work before and understanding yourself and knowing, knowing how you tend to respond in these scenarios. I've had this experience as a young child that spent six months in an oncology ward I knew how to navigate serious illness from a psychological perspective because I'd had that experience four years earlier. So I think it's you know, that's why reflection is so, so important because we learn from our prior experiences and it's such an important part of performance intelligence. What about someone who has an accident who hasn't got that to draw upon? What do they do? Well, I think that's where they need to engage with the right people around them. They need to be taking advice. They need to be um, asking the why question and understanding what the strategies are, what the treatments are. Um, they need to be uh, employing the right help around them um, and not being passive in it, actually being active in it. I personally always think with patients who are navigating um, scenarios like this who don't have the health literacy that I was fortunate to have, that in some ways they need to engage somebody with that health literacy to help them to understand how to navigate the health system because it's it's not a simple system and it's multiple professionals in multiple scenarios. You could be in ICU and then you could be on a ward the next, you could be in outpatients the next, you could be seeing your general practitioner, then the physio. You, you really do need to engage. And I think, Andrew, this is what you and I do outside of health with clients is that we actually help them to develop that literacy. Uh, and, and performance intelligence is very, very much about having the right tools, but we don't have to suddenly magically have them. We can actually outsource. And this is where I think the real value of coaching is. And, and we often we apply coaching in sport as second nature. Andrew, you apply it and I apply it with a lot of our clients. 
But we can also do this in the context of health. We can also seek the right advice and coaching on how to navigate our way through a, a health crisis. So, Andrew, it's not just one thing. It's a, it's a multitude of things. But on a, on a practical level, it's really going back to, I mean, we, we wrote MatchFit book together. It was going back to those levers, move and making sure that you're optimizing movement. That might be moving your toes so you don't get a blood clot in your leg, right through to moving around, you know, mobilizing when you can, right through to actually engaging a purposeful exercise when I was able to. So, you know, be really purposeful of movement. Um, simple things like getting a good healthy dose of sunlight in the morning. There's nothing like 22 days looking at a bright light in an ICU to, to dampen down your, your vitamin D levels. Vitamin D, when the levels are down, your mood goes down. You know, it's about pulling all of those levers. The same with nutrition, um, optimizing nutrition, not being on the can of coke, not being on the Mars bar, getting a good quality nutrition in. Um, it's about pulling all of those levers and, of course, engaging with people around you. You know, that social connection is so, so important. Uh, initially, it was in the middle of COVID, so there was no visitors. The only visitors were your colleagues. So when, when I was home, it was just great engaging with people. And um, so it's pulling all the levers, Andrew. It wasn't just one lever. And we wrote about them in a MatchFit book. Um, and you can apply them in any context in your life on a daily basis. But when you're in this rehabilitation phase like I was, I was back actually pulling that book up and saying, right, I better, I better take my own medicine here, Buckley. You know, it's it's time to actually pull all these levers and try and accelerate recovery. So the six levers we wrote about in Matchfit, move, fuel, recharge, think and connect. You've done high level in each of those. How did you build in play? I've actually never asked you this. And now I can see making a joke of it, not taking it so serious is one thing. But did you do or what did you do to add play? Which is a great lever, by the way. I'm so glad we included that one. Yeah, we've had lots of debates around the science of play, of which there's a tremendous body of literature on play. Oh, let's get to it. As I discovered. When I said the six lever is play, you looked at me, your eyes went cross-eyed, play. I said, look, there'll be science of it. We'll reverse engineer it. But I know, Tom, that people, especially in midlife and beyond, when they have a playful disposition, they're healthy, they're connected, and you went and found the research and went, okay, we'll include it. Now I hear you talking about play just like it's a lever integrated with all the other ones, which is beautiful. How, how did you build in play in that time? One of the things I learned in that time was how to play the card game Uno because it was the one game that my youngest son could play. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and that continues to be a regular feature in our house. So Now, for any Australians, especially my friends in country New South Wales where I was born and grew up, you know. Irish is Uno. He's talking about, <laughs> you know, you and I. Let's just call it a card game, a simple card game that's a lot of fun. And, and I guess just, you know, allow that connection and engagement and a lot of fun. Um, there were days when, you, you know, it was the, the biggest effort in the world to say, yes, I'll play. But on the other hand, it was incredibly important. At the end of every game, you would feel a million times better than you were at the beginning. So it was, you know, it was just a simple game. Yeah. And and the other thing too, you know, I did, I, I played a lot of Netflix movies. You know, I did a lot of different things that took your mind away from self-pity and sorrow. So Andrew, look, that's my PQ story, but you, you're living, breathing, eating performance intelligence as well. I mean, a good example of this there was two weeks ago when I saw on Instagram, just what you put into two days, you know, would, would, for me, that would be two weeks of work. Um, 
how do you apply performance intelligence to get through such an intense, high-performing, busy period like that? Wizard, can you get my mobile? Because after talking to Dr. Christy Goodwin, I don't have my mobile anywhere near the desk anymore because it distracts <laughs> us and all the research we've got on the statistics. So can you give me my mobile, Wiz? Thank you very much. Yeah, this post, Dr. Tom was called delivering four presentations in two days. Presentation number one was 9am for Commonwealth Bank, online launch of our coaching academy on the Wednesday morning. Wednesday, 12pm in Melbourne, BOQ Finance Broker Roadshow. This was the third keynote in a series of keynotes for brokers on high performance thinking. Then the next morning, I started a conference experience with Lineage Group. This was working with a number of family business owners. So of high net worth individuals who don't have the sometimes HR structure, resource structure, and what Lineage do is a great job providing them with peer support, but also I'm helping them on their performance intelligence. I'll explain more on what we did. Then I flew back home and 3 p.m. on the Thursday was Match Fit for Performance. It was a webinar for Zurich Australia. So it was four presentations in two days. So the ComBank one, that was, well, the nuance on that is we're now working with leaders with our coaching academy to give them the skills. It's a bit like 10-pin bowling when you put the gutters up. So when you take your kids bowling, if they hit the gutter, with the gutters up, the guardrails, the ball bounces and they still hit more pins or get more strikes. That's coaching academy because leaders are so busy, we don't expect them to go and do a full degree or spend hours and hours understanding coaching structures. So we give them the important parts, the critical parts, and then use our IP to help them embed it. So that was really exciting launching that. The mindset or the the position I took with that one was much more coach. It was less sort of performance as far as uh, wasn't the jokes or the high energy or the storytelling that I sometimes have with a live event. And even Ange said, Angela Poon said, she saw a different side on that where I was very much into the detail and coaching with our leaders at Combank. After that, I went and sat in the spa wizard, you know that, because we did a debrief. After every presentation, we do a debrief. What worked, what didn't, what can we improve next time? And we're doing the debrief with, and Anne said, are you in the spa? Because you could hear the bubbling. I was like, yeah, yeah, I was. I was sitting in the spa doing the debrief. Then when we finished the phone call, I just sat there in the spa for probably 10, 15 minutes. And then I had a sauna after that, knowing that I was doing two presentations. And that 12 p.m. one was for 250 or 300 people. And I had to be on from the moment I started because my brief was to bring the energy into a morning, which was largely around banking and compliance and what's happening in the ever-changing industry. So I down-regulated. Then I walked from my hotel to the conference venue, which was about one and a half K, got some sunshine, uh, listened to some music, had a coffee as well. So yeah, I was really pulling a lot of those levers we talk about. Then after that, I walked back because I, I, I always have built in, Dr. Tom, after a presentation, a period, interesting, you talk about that reflection, evaluation and reassessment. And I actually now do it on my phone, but I go through a similar process after every presentation. And I've done thousands, but whether it's online, whether it's live or hybrid, it's just a really quick view on what worked, you know, any new stories, or did any new stories come out from live coaching sessions that I can include. So I find closing that loop really helps continue to learn and evolve as a speaker. Then that afternoon, I uh, went to Sorrento. 
In the car on the way, I actually did phone calls, so I optimised my time. Then I got to Sorrento as a dinner with the clients. But at that dinner, I pulled stumps. It was around 9.30, 9.45. I think they kicked on a few hours after I did. But I, I wanted to go there to meet them before the following morning, but I wanted to be fresh. <gasps> I had a walk that afternoon, a light stretch, and spoke to my family. So again, I made sure I put myself in the right state. So if we're talking about a lever, it was recharge. Then the following morning, oh, this was this was fun, working with these business owners, we we met at 7 a.m. We did a 30-minute high-intensity circuit just to show you don't need hours to work on your fitness. And we we're staying at Sorrento, so we're on, on the bay, and it was nine degrees in the water. We have a wizard looking at me, just shaking his head. So I got everyone to do breathing, relaxed breathing, and then we did an an immersion in the water for five minutes. And I had two of the people in the group who either had a phobia or an absolute fear around cold water. So I work with them. And both of them, I'm really happy to say, sat in the water. And I got a message from one of them last week that he's been doing this two or three times a week. He's making it part of his practice. So Tom, what I do with a conference experience is rather than talking about the benefits of physical activity and resistance training, uh, here's what you should eat for breakfast following our performance plate. Here's how you can totally activate your mitochondria by doing breathing and also doing deep water or cold work. We actually do it. Uh, And then in the classroom, I spent 90 minutes talking about changed operating rhythm with COVID and also how the business owners can, can get to that level of performance intelligence. Then I wrapped that up pretty quick. Again, I hopped in a car, I was driven to the airport, and I used to feel like a bit of a prima donna coming from Dubbo. If my mates know that I'd had a driver take me from Sorrento to the airport. For years, Tom, I would drive myself to these events, and I was a lot more fatigued because I'm navigating you know, traffic in cities I don't know. But getting a driver does two things. It allows me to either relax or I can close out work. And then on the plane on the way back, I slept. From Melbourne to Sydney, I would reckon I would have slept oh, a good 30 minutes. So I had a deep sort of relaxation burst. And then when I got back to Sydney in the office, and it was a webinar with Zurich, uh, we had Aaron Walsh, Walshy, who is the mental skills coach for the Chiefs. And I was involved in this webinar, but more from a coaching and a mentoring role, because Aaron and Ange ran the session I was sitting on the sideline. And I found I was fresh when I got back for that. So yeah, four presentations in two days, and I pulled multiple levers to upregulate and get myself ready to perform. But as importantly, probably more importantly, to downregulate and recover in between. So, Sandra, from those experiences, um, can you give me and listeners just two or three things that you do, particularly when you need to bring your performance level to an absolute peak to deliver, say, just take one of those high performance moments, speaking to thousands of people in a high pressure environment. What are the two or three things that you apply that enable you to do that successfully, not just once, but actually multiple times? Yeah, I've thought about that question for years now, Tom, and I've been asked that question multiple times, especially Some of the work I'm doing now with banks and some consulting firms is actually working with executives and senior leaders in how to present. But as much as anything, it's how to manage state. Because I think when a few people have worked with us and seen me present and they go, I want to do that. How have you done that? And I'll go, well, I started years ago when you and I, Tom, did that first workshop with Sydney Water. And literally, it was a sleep and fatigue management and half of our audience was asleep. I think you came at that with a lot of science. I came at it with jazz hands. 
too much jazz hands, too much science. And that's where we've got this really nice blend between both of our worlds combining. We'll call that performance intelligence. So yeah, I've evolved a lot since that terrible presentation. But the three things I do before every presentation now, one is there's a pre-performance routine. Two, there's a pre-conference process. And three, it, it's shifting or managing state. So let's go with number one, pre-performance routine. There's activities I do the night before, there's activities I do the morning of, and there's activities I do 30 minutes before. The night before, similar to what I said with Lineage Group, I went to dinner, but before a big event, I won't drink alcohol. I'll make sure I get to bed at 10 or 10.30 p.m. and I'll relax for at least 20 or 30 minutes before I go to bed. And I will also make sure I go to bed knowing that I've done all the work or most of the work for the presentation. And ideally that day or the day before, I've read through the notes again, so it's not foreign to me. Then the morning of, like I'm addicted, fitness is my drug of choice. I'll exercise every morning and I build it in with some conferences. But if it's just me and it's not a conference experience, I'll absolutely walk or run or swim or lift or do something outdoors to get my body and brain awake. So that's just something I do every single day. I can't even think of a conference I've done in the last 10 years where I haven't had some form of movement of a morning. I've even been in the UK, in in, in northern London, just on the border of Scotland, where it was bloody freezing outside. And I just did a metabolic workout in my hotel room. Um, it was easy, like, you know, burpees, push-ups. Yeah. Uh, thrusters and uh, jumping jacks just to get my body warm. So it's just a given and I will get the 10 minutes if it's bright sunshine or 30 minutes if it's overcast. Again, that morning wake up, pushing coffee back now for 90 minutes after I've been awake so I'm not using the caffeine lever. That's just part of every single day, but I make sure I do that on the conferences. And then 30 minutes before I present, I, I shut down. And you know this, my team know this. I will turn my mobile onto silent and I'll just sit, I'll assess the room, and I'll be present and I'll look at my notes. And more often than not, I'll print the notes out so I'm not on my mobile. Yep. Or if it is on my mobile, I'll, I'll actually turn it off. So I'll actually go offline. Two, the pre-conference process. This starts sometimes months before the conference. When we get an inquiry, Todd, Todd's my amazing EA, he'll book in the meeting, he'll send the pre-conference overview. So before I even have that meeting, they've got some videos to watch, they've got some testimonials, they've got a drop down of the different topics or conference experiences. Then we'll do a brief. Then Todd and I have a, a goal, if it's a conference within 48 hours to get the proposal back two reasons. We find it's 50% easier, 50% more efficient to write that proposal up the next day. So we'll try and factor that in. Second, we know if we get the proposals back, we close more sales. So there's a real sales uh, mechanic in that as well. And then the discipline of writing up the proposal also so with some events, like with some of the big global events, that pre-event meeting might be six months beforehand. Fast forward five months, three weeks and four days, I'm overseas somewhere about to present, go, what the heck am I talking about? I will read that summary of what we spoke about, what they're wanting, what we recommended, and here's the offering. And like literally in 10 or 15 minutes, it can click mm. in right, and then I can get up on stage and actually be on point and sound like I've done a lot more work in that 15 minutes because we did all the heavy lifting months beforehand. So that's the pre-conference process. Todd will also work with me on the slides. I try not to use a lot of slides, but concepts and frameworks, and I really like to have that done a day or two before the presentation as well. 
So that's the pre-conference process. And the third one, well, we've danced between this today, but it's shifting state and specifically psychological state. Now, about a five weeks, six weeks ago, I, I did a big presentation in Melbourne, a thousand people in the audience, and I felt really nervous again. And that little voice started, you haven't done a live event this big for a couple of years. What if you stuff up? You're talking about a technical area, going into a lot of psychology and mental health. What if there's a psychologist in the room? What? If, what if? And I just went, ah, stop. I was starting to feel anxious. I now know, Tom, when that happens, to one, acknowledge it. Hey, I felt like this before. This is a perfectly normal and healthy part that people have, humans have, before a big performance moment. Two, in my back pocket is a toolkit on how to relax. So I'll actually take myself to a quiet room, in this case, the toilet. Didn't even need to go to the toilet, but just sat down in the cubicle and did some deep breathing. It was for about seven or eight minutes totally downregulated my psychology yeah. and, and said, okay, having negative thoughts or having those automatic negative thoughts is perfectly normal. Just just come back later. Not now. Now's not the right time. That's a coping strategy. So, so yeah, in summary, there's three things, pre-performance routine, a pre-conference process and shifting state. And I do that now automatically. It just kicks in because I've done this so many times. So I can do four presentations in two days and rock up at home that night and still be, well, I hope, alert, energized and present because I'm not burning unnecessary energy throughout the day. I've enjoyed today. I've, I've enjoyed looking at the evolution of performance intelligence. I've enjoyed explaining to people our definition of performance intelligence. It's good putting each other on the spot. And I've heard... I've heard you talk about how you came back from your accident a few times. I think the more I listen to it, the more I hear, it just is in your DNA. It was automatic to pull those levers. And if I get off the dance floor under the balcony, a coaching psychology term, and try and look at what I do, I don't even think about it as well. So when you ask me the two or three things, I had to actually pause because I've done it for so long that goes right back to when I was an athlete. I just have a pre-performance routine that works. And interesting, another podcast for another day, a couple of times when I've gone outside that, I've struggled at the start and had to pull myself back. So it's just for me now, so ingrained, just do this stuff at works. Yeah, and we see this in some of our clients too, Andrew. There's a book, Novice to Expert, written by an academic, Patricia Benner. And she talked a lot about how we, in aspects of our life, we can be novices and then we become advanced beginners and then we, we start becoming proficient in something and then we become expert. And one of the things I disagreed with her in, in the expert or expertise element was she said it was intuitive. And in some ways, we, you know, people, it's not intuitive. It's a, it's a learned behavior. There's lots of inputs and lots of experiences and reflection evaluation that, that takes a clinician from novice to expert. And I think it's the same. We see this in a lot of our clients where you or I will turn to each other and go say, oh, that person's got very, very high performance intelligence. It doesn't just appear. There has been a lot of work done beforehand, a lot of trial and error. And it's the same in how you apply it to your trade and how I apply it to what I do. I think we all have this ability to apply the principles of performance intelligence, to be able to have a lot of self and situational awareness. And you do need to work on that and, and, and seek feedback from others as well to develop skills that are specific to what you're trying to achieve and to apply them to shifting your state. 
but we must not forget to be in a continuous evaluation and reflection cycle because that's where you enhance your performance intelligence. Absolutely. And people, you need to do reps and sets. I must say this every single day. How many times have you heard me say this in online forums, in podcasts, in books, in media? You've got to do the reps and sets. You've got to practice the skills in a non-pressurized environment so that when the blowtorch is put on your backside and you feel the heat, you can pull the levers and rise to the occasion. And, and in fact, often overperform when pressure is put on rather than choke or feel stressed and anxious and underperform. Wrapping up, point number four we said we'd discuss today What's our vision for performance intelligence? What's yours? Well, I've got products and programs, so I can't help but go with the commercial side. Uh, This podcast has now been renamed to Performance Intelligence, and I love the name because it gives us a really broad umbrella to look at how do people apply performance intelligence. We're writing another book, Gluttons for Punishment, book next year. We're going to be working on that. There's a diagnostic that goes with it. We're now talking about this in products and programs. So we've got all the products. What's your vision? Uh, My vision is very simple. Uh, I mean, there are things we want to do with performance intelligence, but my vision is I really want people to be aware that you do have the ability to apply these principles to whatever you're trying to achieve. We, We can apply this to anything we're doing in our life. Now, we talked about your example of high pressure performance moments. We talked about my example of recovering from a self-inflicted injury, but we can apply this to what we're trying to achieve in our well-being, in relation to our work, in relation to our relationships, etc. That performance intelligence is not something that just appears. It's something we can work at, and and it's something that we it's within our control to use these principles to achieve what we're trying to achieve. And one day, somewhere, somehow, we want to put performance intelligence on the map so people know the term, more importantly, use the term to help them in all parts of their life. Absolutely, absolutely. Now you've got to go. You've got a lecture to go and do, right? I do have to go. And our final comment is that uh, when people come back to me and talk about performance intelligence as if they've just discovered it, that's when I'll be really pumped and excited. Awesome. You go talk to your medical students. I'll wrap up for everyone who's been listening to this. I'm excited. I'm excited that we've launched this, but we've been working on it for a couple of years. So it's good to talk it, as you say, into existence. This has been fun, Andrew. Um, It's always good to talk about performance intelligence. Hi again, it's Andrew, and I hope you really enjoyed that episode. We would appreciate if you helped to amplify the Performance Intelligence podcast by sharing episodes with your friends and with your colleagues by going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. This really does help get the message out to a wider audience, and I love reading the comments as well. If you'd like to know more about booking me as a speaker at your next annual conference or company offsite, or purchasing one of the books I've written, including MatchFit, Or if you'd just like to receive my monthly e-newsletter, which is called the AM edition, that has stacks of information specific to all things human performance, go to andrewmay.com and we'll see you on the next edition of Performance Intelligence. Performance Intelligence.